everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing okay. It's getting into the sort of mid-December range now and it's darker earlier and later yeah yeah and it's getting to be cold and and snowy bit by bit you know it's getting to be christmas and we've got our christmas decorations up and we've been wrapping presents and we've been writing cards but also it's been like a tough year and you got that seasonal depression going on and sometimes it's like a little hard to get through certain days but i'm here i'm with you we're recording a scream scene so people are listening to the scream scene yeah thank you listeners uh you're the best yeah we had our um spotify podcast wrapped thing tell us that like the numbers are good basically yeah so that was a really nice surprise um so thank you, whether you listen on Spotify or not. Uh, it's it's just great. Um, really appreciate everyone being here. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am feeling tired. Uh, it's been very busy at work. But I am also tentatively excited, intrigued by tonight's movie. What are we watching? Well, Sarah, I'll be happy to provide context that may burst that bubble for tonight's movie this is the astounding she monster from 1958 which that definitely sounds like a marvel comic doesn't it um because astounding is in there for sure um and i think the other reason is um sounds like knockoff she creature right yeah it's not knockoff she creature um and in fact as we will learn the Astounding She-Monster was not the original title of this film, but uh, in order to learn about the story of this film, we have to start with the man who created this film. The man, the myth, the legend. Right. The person's name here. Ronnie Ashcroft. Ronnie Ashcroft. <laughs> you know, Is that his birth name? Ronald V. Ashcroft. Okay. I just imagine... <laughs> Ashcroft sounds like such like a like high class name. You Ashcroft know? Manor, Lord and Lady Ashcroft. Exactly. And then it's like, hi, I'm Ronnie. Basically, very few films can be said to be the work of one person in truth. No matter how much or how little you subscribe to or tour theory, most movies require a decent amount of people to get them made. But... The Astounding She-Monster really is mostly due to Ronnie Ashcroft. Um, He was born in 1923 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. So he's not even British with a name like Ashcroft. I mean, New Bedford, Massachusetts is like old money New England. You know, it's not people who talk with a British accent, but it is people who talk with like that mid-Atlantic accent. Fair enough. Old money people. 
And Ronnie dreamed of making movies one day. And he got his start in the film industry at age 18 when he joined the New York branch of 20th Century Fox publicity department. Then World War II happened. And uh, that sort of took up the next several years of his life as it did with a lot of people in the 1940s. And after the war was over, he moved out west to Hollywood, hoping to become a cameraman. Then, after learning that it cost $1,000 to join the Camera Operators Union, he changed his ambition to film editor when he learned it only cost $250 to join their union. I thought you said he came from old money. Mm, he came from an area of the country that has a lot of old money. Okay. But Ronnie Ashcroft seems to be someone who did not and never did have much money to his name. His first credits were as the editor of the film's Wetback and Outlaw Queen. And he also had a producer credit on Outlaw Queen. Both of these were like B-Westerns that skirted like close to exploitation. Yeah, with a name like Wetback. That, that's not what you're thinking. Mm. But Outlaw Queen. For sure. Definitely. Now, both of these films, Wetback and Outlaw Queen, were written by Pete LaRoche, uh, who was a writer of B-movie westerns, western short stories in pulp magazines, articles in adult magazines, and also probably a pseudonym for one Edward D. Wood Jr. <laughs> Just judging by the material? Um, so Edward studies, Edward academics, Edward scholars uh, generally believe that Pete LaRoche was a pseudonym for Edward. It's hard to be certain of anything in these cases. Okay. But there is a later movie from the 70s called... I want to say Revenge of the Virgins. I might be wrong. That is written by Pete LaRoche that people are pretty sure is Ed Wood. So it's really just a question of like, are all these other Pete LaRoches also Ed Wood? My take is yes, because <laughs> uh, Ed Wood and Ronnie Ashcroft became friends. And uh, well, Wood sort of took the other man under his wing, became his mentor uh, Edward was actually one year younger than Ronnie Ashcroft, but he'd been, you know, at this for longer. So Ashcroft would join the crew of Night of the Ghouls, uh, Ed's follow-up to Plan 9 from Outer Space, which still had not seen general release. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Ashcroft was the assistant director of Night of the Ghouls. While that movie sat around waiting to be finished... Uh, Ashcroft decided to launch his own foray into science fiction. So it was Edward who gave Ashcroft sort of the push to be his own man, as it were, make his own films. So Ashcroft would produce, direct, and edit tonight's movie, which was originally entitled Naked Invader. <laughs> uh... And given that writer Frank Hall never wrote anything other than this. And there's like no real record of his existence outside of his credit writing this movie. Um, it's possible that maybe Frank Hall is a pseudonym for Ashcroft. 
and he wrote this movie as well, or it's possible that that is a pseudonym for Ed Wood, who was said to have served as an uncredited creative consultant on this project. Either way, the film was made entirely independently by Ashcroft uh, for $18,000. Oh, that's so little money. And shot in four days. Four days. With an eye to keeping costs as low as possible. Absolutely. That's why it only cost eighteen. Interiors were shot at a single mountain cabin, and a recreation of that mountain cabin's interior on a set, uh, on a soundstage in L.A., with exteriors filmed in the woods outside that mountain cabin in Fraser National Park. The alien spacecraft in this film was a diffused image of a lit match. <laughs> Lead actor Robert Clark was paid $500 with a 4% share of the producer's profit share. So Ashcroft basically promised him 4% of what he was going to get as a profit share as the producer of the film. And this actually netted Clark $2,000. Nice. uh, On top of his 500, which he considered like pretty good for a film of this kind. Clark didn't think the movie was any good um, and was kind of embarrassed to be associated with it. But he did agree that like, The pay was fine for what it was. Now, Clark, age 38, had gotten his start at RKO in the 1940s, where he appeared in minor roles in films like The Body Snatcher and Bedlam. Oh. And we've actually seen Clark before because in the 1950s, he went freelance and was the lead actor, or the lead heroic actor, we'll say, in 1951's The Man from Planet X. Oh. He was the American reporter. Okay. So what has he been up to since then? Well, he appeared in Outlaw Queen, which is where he met Ronnie Ashcroft. Was he the man going after the Outlaw Queen? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to watch Outlaw Queen sometime. (laughs) Now, the titular she-monster of this film was played by 23-year-old actress Shirley Kilpatrick, uh, for whom this was her second film, her first credited role, and her second last film, an only credited role. So she appeared in three films, of which this was the middle one, and it was the only one that she was credited for. To save costs, Ashcroft's wife Lorraine served as Kilpatrick's stunt double. Lorraine was 36. Prime age to be a stunt double. Yes. As someone who is 31 and feels like her body's falling apart and doesn't smoke and drink all day. uh, Great. Prime age to be a stunt double for a 23-year-old. That too. Also featured in this film is actor Ken Duncan, who was born Kenneth Duncan McLaughlin in Ontario, Canada in 1903. Duncan had been a Hollywood veteran since 1930, known for playing heavies in westerns and other B-genre pictures. Uh, He billed himself as the meanest man in Hollywood. Um, Duncan had appeared in two westerns that Ed Wood had been involved in, the TV pilot Crossroad Avenger and Yakima Knutt's film The Lawless Rider. Duncan then appeared as the lead villain in Night of the Ghouls, Dr. Carl Acula, making... Oh, guys, guys, at least, okay, 
Okay, I will let you finish. We will talk about that name when we get to Night of the Ghouls. Indeed. And so it was on that set that uh, Duncan made Ashcroft's acquaintance and they became friends. And so he ended up cast in this film. On the first day of shooting, the back of Kilpatrick's costume split when she bent over. With no time or money for repairs, it was decided that she would walk backwards out of all of her scenes, never to show her back to the camera. That's one solve. She's playing an alien. It's fine. Just safety pins, guys. They're like, what, 50 cents? Whatever, man. 50 cents in 1958 is a lot of money. 50 cents is five movie tickets. Now, the onset crew was very small. There was the director, a cameraman, a gaffer, a sound man, and an assistant for the actors. The film's cinematography was by Hollywood veteran William C. Thompson, who'd been shooting films since 1914. In 1934, he shot Sex Maniac. And in 1953, he became Ed Wood's regular cinematographer, shooting Glenner Glenda, Jailbait, The Lawless Rider, Bride of the Monster, Dementia, The Violent Years, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and Final Curtain. At the conclusion of shooting Naked Invader, Ashcroft went to go find a distributor to buy his movie. In a meeting with American International Pictures, Ashcroft claimed the film had cost $50,000 and had been shot in seven days. AIP bought the picture for $60,000 and changed the title to The Astounding She-Monster due to concerns about censors. Yeah, with the title like The Naked Invader. Also, clearly Ashcroft is picking up some tips from Castle. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, they then gave the movie an incredible poster by artist Albert Callis. Uh, it was... truly is incredible. Yeah. Albert Callis was AIP's like standard poster artist. Um, in most cases, the process was like AIP would come up with a title, Callis would do a poster, and then the movie would get written. Um, but in this case, it was done after the fact. It is a really good poster. And uh, this film was released on April 10th. 1958 as the bottom half of a double bill with Roger Corman's um, sort of big budget, $65,000. Big budget for him. A historical fantasy epic, the saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent. Quite a title. Yes. Yep. <laughs> That's all we have to say. It's, it's quite a movie. Um, contemporary reviews called she monster quote, a feeble and ridiculous contribution to the science fiction library, unquote. While modern critics were no more kind, with critic Paul Meehan saying, quote, there's absolutely nothing astounding about the astounding she-monster unless it's how astoundingly bad it is, unquote. Now, after the astounding she-monster, Ronnie Ashcroft's next film, which would come out in fall of 1958, would be Girl with an Itch, <laughs> the story of a nymphomaniac busty blonde bombshell gold digger who gets picked up by a lonely farmer as a hitchhiker and then tries to seduce the old man out of his money and property opposed by the farmer's son. So close to a horror movie there. <laughs> so close. Uh, it is a movie that for a 1958 movie that's wild is extremely interested in letting you see uh how busty the lead actress is yeah um she wears a lot of low-cut dresses with no bras then after girl with an itch ashcroft would edit edgar g ulmer's film the naked venus 
which is about a family torn apart when it is learned that one member of the family is a nude model for painters. And the last film that Ashcroft would direct, produce, and write himself would be Like Wow, uh, the story of a man who finds magic glasses that let him see women naked. I'm sensing a theme, Ben. Ashcroft would then work as a sound editor for television in the 1960s and would pass away in 1988. The Astounding She-Monster was released on DVD by Image Entertainment in 2000 and is available to stream on Tubi. Thank God for Tubi. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess um, we can dive into this movie. It will not be as wild as some of these other movies that seem to come later in (laughs) Ashcroft's career, but, you know, we'll see how astounding this is. Hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the astounding She-Monster from 1958, directed by Ronald Ronnie Ashcroft. See you on the other side, everybody. back to scream scene everybody we just finished watching the astounding she monster from 1958 directed by ronnie ashcroft sarah thumbs up thumbs down shrug (laughs) no like it's a fine enough movie it uh it's certainly not the most terrible that we've ever seen it is quite bad it's not good it does offer excellent examples of some of the worst pitfalls of cheap B-movies. Yeah, it's almost like a checklist of the kind of stuff that we see in these movies. Yeah. That being said, there were some things that I can be like, oh, Ronnie's trying something here. Mm. You know, oh, neat, effort. Right. Cool to see. For the most part, no. (laughs) Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, this was bad. This was bad. (laughs) I don't know how long it was, but it It felt like forever. It's definitely one of those, like, if you cut out the fat, this would not be long enough to show in a movie theater kind of movies. But let me take out my steak knife and cut off that fat in this (laughs) plot synopsis. Okie dokie. So when we open, we are fading through space like it's um, Fantasia. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get a voiceover narration uh, talking about, like, Earth and other planets and whatever. It doesn't matter. But as we are moving through the galaxies, we come to an alien planet and we see a meteor leave. Um, though we know that this is not Krypton because the planet does not explode after the meteor leaves. Um, and, like, the voiceover is, like, the the, the planet aims to destroy earth before earth destroys them or something like it's like the fucking zindi from enterprise whatever yeah the the basic gist of it is you know we've developed nuclear weapons and that makes us dangerous and uh so we got to be taken care of yeah yeah then we head to earth and we see socialite okay so actually let me back up we got 
the title sequence saying like movie by people. Um, and when we come back, we have a new narrator talking about um, here's our, our people like, oh, Margaret, the socialite that we see on screen, like what's going to be in your day today? Will it be that your car won't start? No, you have a date with fate. It's very Edward. Yeah. The first set of narration is very like Roger Corman, mm. right? With like how it goes um and the person doing it has like a very um a very strong like east coast accent it's like a kennedy narrating a sci-fi movie and then the (laughs) second narrator yeah has that very ed wood movie feel of like trying to set up everything as if this is some sort of like off-broadway one-act play in new york that's like going to get critical rave reviews you know what i mean totally not good. But anyways, it, it's entertaining enough. So we meet socialite Margaret. Uh, she gets kidnapped by two gangsters uh, named Nat and Brad. And um, one of their girlfriends, Esther. As each character is introduced, the narrator is like, and here's our socialite, blah, blah, blah. And here are like three people going to work to kidnap. Our innocent bystander, as described by the narrator, is geologist dick was that his name the whole time it is his name man i don't remember anyone saying his name in the whole movie he is up in the mountains at a cabin and he's walking his dog lassie and not actually the dog's name but is the breed of lassie and he sees a meteor crash maybe a mile or so off from his cabin he's like that's weird but i'll have to check it out in the morning So he heads to his cabin. Uh, We follow the camera going to the meteor crash site and we see an alien lady emerge. And she is done up to look as if she is naked or possibly has some kind of thin metal spacesuit on. Yeah, it's very much like a seven of nine kind of look. But like, I suspect that on set it was like glittery silver probably but like in black and white it's it's sort of the same tone as her skin yeah so nat and brad are driving with uh the two girls in the back um marge is tied up of course and they're driving through the mountains and they suddenly crash because nat sees the alien lady but she's nowhere to be found after they crash the car So the bad guys take Marge and Esther up to a nearby cabin, which just happens to be where Dick is. (laughs) (laughs) We're mature. Um, I've made many Dick jokes on this podcast. Um, It is fine for you to laugh at that statement. Um, So they get in there. Their plan is basically to um, take Dick's Jeep but the headlights don't work. And he's like, at this time of night, driving on the ravine is dangerous. So you you can't use the Jeep. They do try to fix it. No avail, whatever. It means that they're stuck here for the night. Brad sees the alien lady outside of the window. And he's like, there she is. And goes off after her, wanders around in the wilderness. And then as soon as he sees her, he tries to shoot her because he's threatened to no avail. And she touches him and he dies. For reasons I will get to. Uh, Because he doesn't come back, Nat's like, well, I'm going to go look for Brad. Also, uh, Dick's dog, Lassie, uh, was let out. um, So they also hear her barking 
up a storm. So Nat goes out and he sees that Lassie gets killed and he manages to bring Brad's body back to the cabin. While he's out, Marge and Dick do try to, you know, talk of a way to escape because Esther is a drunk and they really play it up. But, you know, to no avail. Nat returns is fine. But he's like, yeah, there's like an alien out there. What the fuck? Dick sees the cause of Brad's death, which is radium poisoning. (laughs) And it's unclear whether this is a ruse or not, but he says that Nat is a secondary contact and will likely be sick and die if he doesn't see a doctor soon because of this exposure. So they're like, okay, well, like, fuck it. We're going into the Jeep. We'll drive the ravine at night. Who the fuck cares? There's an alien lady out there. So they get out of the cabin to get to the Jeep. And then the lady appears and they're like, oh shit, back to the cabin, I guess. This pattern of leave cabin, go back to cabin, leave cabin, go back to cabin is the pattern of the movie that going forward. So they get back into the cabin. And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? Before they can answer that, the alien lady jumps through the window and everyone's like, oh shit, grab your coat and get out. <laughs> so as they're running out, um, the alien lady follows. Esther gets killed and the alien lady is chasing Nat, who um, comes to the edge of a cliff. And just as the alien lady is going to lunge and attack he jumps out of the way and she tumbles off the ravine in a very chef's kiss terrible edited way uh, that i'm sure we will get into in the discussion and he presumes that she's dead so he heads back to the cabin nat believing that the alien menace has been defeated he's like kate marge into the car dick into the car um we're driving down this road alien is done for they're driving alien lady appears in the middle of the road dick and marge escape nat gets killed guess where dick and marge escape to the cabin this happens a few times of escape cabin escape cabin and then dick puts his geologist brain to use and he's like she's killing people with radium then that means that there must be radium in her suit meteor that was crashing had this kind of color hue to it when it was going through the atmosphere which means that there was platinum involved so if i can create an acid to melt the platinum in her suit it will expose her to our atmosphere and therefore she will die so he does that hits her with the acid and she dies and then a slowly slowly like disintegrates in front of our eyes but she does leave behind this very conspicuous pendant necklace um they manage to open it and inside is a letter explaining that this alien was uh an emissary from the united federation of planets uh hoping to get earth to join the federation (laughs) they don't actually use the council of planets in this movie yeah but but, you know you you get what we're saying yeah Um, And they're like, oh, but she died. Then why did she attack us? Well, I guess she only attacked when we attacked first. Well, do you think they'll send another emissary? If they do, will it be to invite us again? Or will it be to avenge her death? Dun, dun, dun. The end. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me track back real quick uh, to talk about the editing of the alien falling off of the cliff. Your favorite part of the movie, for sure. <laughs> I think so, because it's it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
As with many cheap B movies, it can be really hard to tell who is where in the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't have a lot of like blocking. You just have like shot of this person and shot of that person. Nobody's eye lines match up. It's it's really hard to understand like spatial relation. But you get the gist that alien lunges, Nat moves out of the way, and then to convey her falling, they take what appears to be <laughs> a still image of alien lady um, basically taken either on the ground or like against some black velvet or whatever, sprawled out like she's doing like a cartwheel. And they show that image, spin it, <laughs> and then suddenly she's on the ground <laughs> and like gestures as if she's just landed after going down the ravine. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because there's no like, like the still image of her cartwheel is full size of the screen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I guess you hear her scream. But it's, it, it's, it's like it's like you, you kind of imagine in the background like -la 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 -la, like exactly exactly it's so funny and the fact that he started out as an editor makes me think that he was he as in Ronnie Ashcroft here makes me feel like he thought this was a very clever way <laughs> to show her falling without actually having to endanger the actress slash his wife <laughs> and no Ronnie. It, it was not. It was humorous. So thank you for that. But there's still like half the movie to go through. So yeah. So this was extremely bad in all the kind of usual ways for a movie of this type and vintage. Um, we already pointed out the two different sets of narration, which are both pompous and pretentious in different ways. They never come back. Yeah. Which you is think at weird. the end you know, the narrator would come back or something. And then like the first set of narration that's like, here is the planet Antares in the whatever constellation. They've decided fuck Earth and they're going to send someone to kill all of us and eliminate the Earth threat before it can become a threat. That's what it says, right? In the opening narration. Yeah. Um, but that's like completely inconsistent with the movie's final like, oh, we were just here to invite you to dinner twist at the very end. And not only does that narration clash with that, but like, so does all of the she monsters actions. Absolutely. Like they try to justify this whole, like she only attacked when attacked thing, like self-defense thing. Well, the problem is, is that like no one acts normal in this movie. <laughs> Cause like, so, okay. So we should probably describe the astounding she monster and what she's like. She's very disappointing. Yeah, I do appreciate her Spock eyebrows. Yes. So she's, as we said, wearing like a seven of nine bodysuit with this pendant. She's got like, yeah, Spock eyebrows. That's basically like it for her appearance, like some mm -hmm. some mad eyeshadow. And then her whole like modus operandi is that she walks very slowly towards you. She doesn't talk uh, at all. She has no personality whatsoever she is kind of boring her like touch of death is literally just like a like tag you're it kind of thing with like a little zap zap sound effect so she's just she's just very boring like the most exciting the movie gets is when she like jumps through the window right yeah that's the big stunt of the movie 
and her actions are like very nonsensical. But then again, like the first time she runs into a person, it's Brad the gangster, and she's walking towards him very slowly. Now, the one little bit of creativity here is she's wearing this like silver bodysuit that clearly is like very reflective because what they do is, is they shine just a big old light at her all the time so that she looks like she's glowing, which is like an effective, clever way of achieving that effect if you can do it consistently. There's also like a like wavy wavy yeah like ripple effect put on the film whenever we're looking at her um sort of similar to like what you might expect for like a bad underwater image yeah or when you're about to go into a flashback right exactly but that's just sort of on her all the time so she's got this weird otherworldly appearance i'll I'll give them that Mm -hmm. but like a naked glowing lady steps out of the bushes and starts walking towards you very slowly your gangster boss has told you don't shoot at things because it might draw the cops. Do you a be like, Oh, Hey, a naked lady in the middle of the woods. Dope. B back away slowly or run away since she's clearly not fast enough to catch you. C stand there like an idiot and wait to die or D fire every bullet you have at her. The answer is D. Uh, This guy just like unloads on her before she said anything or done anything Mm -hmm. at all threatening. So, yes, she only attacked when threatened the first time there. But like, also, why did Brad shoot her? It's very strange. Yeah. She does just straight up kill the dog. The dog didn't do anything but bark at her. She also kills a black bear that gets set up in like side conversations. Oh, yeah. There's like a telephone call early in the movie that's like, hey, check out for that bear. Yeah. Chekhov's black bear is on the mantle. And uh, later it comes down off the mantle and is just sort of in front of her and she kills it. I was kind of hoping that the bear would kill her. Yeah. That'd be funny. Because bear claws, you know, but it's also like a black bear. Yeah. Which, like, if you're going to run into a bear, you kind of hope it's a black bear. Right. Like, they're, like, the more timid of them. They can still fuck you up, but, like. And then, like, why does she come to the cabin? Why, if her job was, I mean, this, okay, listen, you can level this complaint at every cheap sci-fi b-movie of the 50s yeah why if her job was to be the ambassador to earth did she fucking land in bumfuck nowhere california i feel like okay she's in a meteor she she don't have control over where she lands yeah but as i said she's just happy she didn't land in the ocean ben this is this is a standard thing with (laughs) sci-fi movies from the 50s though because they they're cheap but then like she goes to this cabin these people keep trying to get away from her, so she keeps chasing them. She Wait, no, take me to your leader. Right, exactly. <laughs> Wait up. I can um, only go at five kilometers an hour. The main thing is she she never tries to talk to anyone ever. Like you just said, like, hey, wait up, take me to your leader. She never says jack shit. She no. just advances at people slowly like she's the Terminator. The only time that she opens her mouth is when she screams when the acid hits her. Right. Which, by the way, doesn't actually hit her she reacts as if they successfully threw something at her it's like they had other shots they needed to do with With the the flask so they didn't want to like mess up the suit somehow right exactly like they they yeah so she just reacts to something that isn't there so they pull a note 
written on like a piece of paper in her pendant, which like, why is that there? Like, yeah, it's like as if she's like a dog, right? Like as if like the oh, alien like, um, scent. The Bernard. Yeah, is the Saint Bernard like, with, with the big barrel on their neck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's as if they sent a dog with a note saying like, hi, I'm Lassie. Like I'm lost. Please return me to these people. Like because. <laughs> There's this note, and the note is written in English. They actually do make a point of saying, hey, it's in English. They must have learned it from, like, our radio waves or whatever, which is nonsense. But regardless, they they say this, which means that this alien race, like, knows that English is a thing and to, like, that that's our language. So you'd think that, like, the ambassador, whose job it is to, like, speak to our leaders would be able to speak and speak English, but she just walks around killing people and then like keeps doing it. So yeah, the, the movie story is nonsense um, because it's not sci-fi. Like, like yeah. it's got all these kind of like, Hey, I've seen Dave Year stood still too, kind of sci-fi things that it's cribbed, but like it's, it's a horror movie cause it's about like this monster stalking you through the night. Right. I feel like ultimately this movie doesn't know what it wants to be because it goes one way than the other and completely contradicts itself. Like I like when movies will like set something up and then turn it on its head. Mm. Like the first alien movie suddenly becoming a horror movie. Right. Right. But this is like, if anything, this movie is just um, a first foray into exploitation movies I don't know even what genre this is. Well, it's got that sort of like, let's put some gangsters and people with like personal issues in a single location with some sci-fi horror shit going on outside premise that like Roger Corman has used a lot of times. The triple on the hot tin roof. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like I was reminded of day the world ended. Absolutely. And you know, the way that Esther being a drunk being an alcoholic like plays the way that some of those Roger Corman movies did where it was like as if they're trying to you know like I said do like a one-act play but with aliens and a Paul Blaisdell monster right and uh, you know you can see that the idea is let's put some you know the the narration practically even says this like let's Mm -hmm. put some unrelated people in sort of a pressure cooker situation and see what happens and we've seen that a bunch of times so I don't think like that 100% like disqualifies it from the horror stuff because they're copying stuff that other sci-fi horror movies have done with those elements. Day the World Ended did not rank, Ben. Hmm. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. I will also say that that premise of put a bunch of people in a cabin in the woods and have something scary be outside, you know, they do it because it's cheap, right? You have one location out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And I will also say that like, eventually that premise is going to yield some like hardcore horror classics. For sure. So like eventually they're going to iterate on that enough that (laughs) it'll be good. We're just sort of not there yet. I think um, kind of speaking to this movie doesn't really know what it wants to be. It doesn't really know how to leverage style. Mm. Maybe it's because it was shot in four days, but it doesn't really know what its visual style wants to be beyond things are happening on film. Because, for example, it's very comfortable with shadow and darkness covering the screen, except uh, it just means you can't see what's going on. 
there's no purpose to it. There's no style to it. Like what you would see in film noir. Well, because like all of the stuff that has a lot of darkness in it feels more like a mistake. We shot at night and we're pointing a spotlight at the like Mm -hmm. the alien. So you can see her and Hey, we have this spotlight. So let's point at other people when they're running around. Cause when we're in the cabin, the cabin is just like a sitcom set. Yeah. It's evenly lit. Um, a lot of the scenes in the cabin are shot from like one angle only one camera setup, a uh, long shot where we see everyone like head to toe, you know, very proscenium style. We we did note some neat parts, mm. um, the glow effect, um, the like ripple effect when it's on the alien. I I talked about the woman falling, the the alien falling off of the cliff, and I think, like I said, Ashcroft thinking that that's a clever solve. So I'm, I'll give credit to him for, like, doing the extra mile of, like, putting that stuff together. And then uh, the ravine road mm. that, you know, is consistently said this is very dangerous, especially to drive at night. When our characters are driving it, we consistently get these shots of um, from the Jeep looking down the ravine as we're traveling along and there are rocks falling as if you're right on the edge. Yeah. And that's, you know cool you're putting some thought into this not just like showing us that there is danger not just showing that um it's a steep fall but also showing that we're so close the rocks are falling so you know it's doing some things before 80 percent of the movie it's not it reminds me a lot of like the very early movies i made as like a teenager mm. where you know you have limited resources you might have like an idea for a cool shot because you like got that idea like there on the day. You're like, oh, what if we did this? And you have weird shots that come about because you're like, oh, we can't do that. So what can we do to kind of cover that? And you have these like cheap ass solves that are very like, oh, wait, but we can do this because we couldn't do that. And, you know, what if we fixed it this way? And you're like, I'm sure no one will notice. And like, <laughs> you know, it, it really has that kind of feel of like a bunch of people, like a handful of people trying to make a movie with no money and having to be creative to make up for their flaws, but also like they aren't creative enough. And the like script was never good to begin with. Right. Like the whole thing where she can't turn around because mm -hmm. there's a, a hole in like a rip in the back of her suit. We do actually see the back of the suit a few times in shots that must've been done before. before. The, yeah. The problem is, is that like her backing away out of scenes never comes across as like weird and otherworldly and alien. It just sort of comes as, I mean, it's just as boring as her walking towards the camera. There's also a lot of like shots that get repeated. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they run to and from the cabin a bunch of times, which, you know, is one of the hallmarks of a cheap movie, but sometimes the shots of them running away or back are the same shots, which is just egregious. Yes. A whole other level of cheap. Like, I guess what I'm saying is occasionally this movie is charming, but far too often it is boring, which is like not something that like a classic Ed Wood movie ever is. Yeah. It's actually kind of neat how like, we've identified that Ashcroft is taking inspiration or at least influenced by Roger Corman and Ed Wood. Yes. Of course, Ashcroft will never be a name that 
has the same resonance as either of those. Uh, but it's just interesting because I never would have like thought that someone like this existed. Right. And like it kind of makes sense. Like if you are an indie director in the 50s trying to get your cheap sci-fi b-movie off the ground who are you going to look to right you're going to look to roger corman and you're going to look to ed wood and you're going to actually get ed wood's help because like he's in the trenches there with you right you aren't going to get roger corman's help because like he's he's moving on up he is he's he does not want to stay in those trenches you know his movie's the the a picture to your b-movie now right like like <laughs> totally right like yeah literally um, <laughs> the other thing i noticed about this movie and it's kind of like a minor thing but you can really see how the movies we've been watching lately are getting more comfortable with like eye candy and casual oh, violence absolutely yes there's the alien in her skin tight suit but margaret the like socialite who gets kidnapped She's in this like cocktail dress, cocktail dress. Yeah. Yeah. She's in a cocktail dress that is very tight around the um, like bosom. Mm -hmm. And so like her boobs are just kind of like have a little bit of like an overflow to them and are always just like very prominent in the frame because it's like a dress that is maybe like a size too small or maybe she's wearing like a bra that's like a size too small under it or something. Listen, she has to do a lot of running. Yes, exactly. She, needs, she needed some support. Well, but also like yes. she needs to bounce around a lot. Um, <laughs> Jesus. So but you're not wrong. Yeah, exactly. So like we're seeing kind of this like more eye candy in these movies more often and, you know, stuff like the way that Nat just kind of casually like backhands women and yes. stuff like he does do that a couple of times to marge when she's trying to escape or speaks up or whatever and i think he does it to esther once or twice too when she's like not doing what she's told or whatever i don't think so but he definitely like mocks her alcoholism mm -hmm. while it's possible that maybe this wasn't a code film because like it's a cheap b movie playing drive-ins and stuff it's also worth stating that by this point, like 1958, the code has been heavily weakened mm. by the rise of independent art house cinemas that are showing foreign films. And even like the big Hollywood studios are starting to be more and more okay with like going to bat for releasing a movie without a code seal if they think it's, like it'll be worth it. Exactly. Um, so, you know, we're seeing sort of slowly the rise of like, sex and violence in like gradually larger doses basically and i just wanted to note that absolutely now we we kind of talked about genre a little earlier mm. but let's move on to ranking and before we do that i think we have to have the discussion of whether this is horror because i don't think it is i think it is but only because it's not enough of anything else that's fair. Like, because the majority of the runtime is, like, monster coming at you slowly through the dark and you running away from monster in the dark and, like, running to and from places, to me, that is horror then. You know, there's gangsters in this movie, but this isn't a gangster movie. They're totally. just there for, like, flavor. I guess also with, like, the opening of, like, to the planet with the explicitness of, like, they come in to kill us um, does try to set up that this is a monster that is going to do harm. Yeah. I guess part of what is making me second guess this is the complete 
U-turn on that at the end. But that being said, in other movies, I'm thinking specifically of the Five Fingers of Death or whatever it's hmm. called. What? The Five Fingers of Death. The 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 Beast with Five Fingers? The one where um it's like the disembodied hand. Yeah, the beast with five fingers. Um where it completely turns into like, let's laugh at this for right. the last five minutes. Well, also I think that like I mean, this movie is bad at what it's trying to do, but I think that ending is probably supposed to play as a like the real monster was man the whole time kind yeah. of ending, which is like a standard sort of tropey ending for these kinds of movies as well. Totally. But like, Beast with Five Fingers did rank, so mm. I feel like that ending shouldn't disqualify Astounding She-Monster. And the sci-fi stuff here is just like not strong enough. Um, it's mostly just gobbledygook to justify the monster. Okay, so I do have a couple spots in mind for ranking. Where were you thinking? So I was thinking really low. Oh, yeah. Um, Same. I basically started at the bottom and started working my way up. That's how I found my spot that I picked out. Fair. So right at the bottom is Son of Ngagi. Um, And it's at the bottom here with movies like The Snow Creature and Torture Ship and House of Mystery, which are all movies that I categorize as like movies that barely meet the qualifying status of being movies. This isn't quite that incompetent. So I looked up from there, and the next kind of real movies that are here, we have stuff like Wolf Blood and The Creeper, which are also really bad in different ways. But I felt that The Astounding She-Monster was at least trying in a way that The Creeper was not. And we've got movies like The Monster Walks, which is hella boring. And then we have Mesa of Lost Women, which is really fucking bad. And if you offered me a choice of Astounding She-Monster or Mesa of Lost Women, I would choose Astounding She-Monster. And I will tell you why. Yeah. Astounding She-Monster has a completely inappropriate but not maddening musical score. Uh, that is that is very true. Astounding okay. She-Monster has a musical score that I'm not sure if it's made out of library tracks or not. But it is extremely dramatic classical music. Um, again, like that Fantasia comparison, like as if it was Rite of Spring or something. Um, and it is doing some heavy lifting in this movie. Like shots of someone just walking through the woods with nothing happening and no camera movement will be scored with like dun 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 dun. Whereas Mesa of Lost Women had like a weird rambly flamenco guitar yeah, track that, that looped. Was used in Jailbait or used it from Jailbait? Yes, Jailbait used it first okay. and then they just took it from Jailbait. I, I, I'm pretty sure. So because of that, this is better than Mesa of Lost Women. Right above Mesa of Lost Women is The Unearthly, which is probably a better made movie on every single element. But it has like a really upsetting depiction of like mentally ill people and mental health and mental health facilities that I find really disgusting. Um, so I want to put the astounding she monster at 197 above the unearthly and below El Mysterio del Rostro Palito. You are being much kinder to this movie than I was. Interesting. I was like, okay, what other movie? reused shots in a way that felt 
Insulting to the audience's intelligence? Yes, insulting. That is exactly the word. And I thought of the snow creature mm-hmm. at number 212. Above that is Condemned to Live. And as much as Condemned to Live deserves to be in this spot, we often point to it trying to do something neat with the idea of like him turning into the vampire when there's complete darkness and mm-hmm. there being concerns about how much light is in the room or whatever. And it's one of the first vampire movies to kind of play the like, oh, it's a tragedy to be immortal kind of angle. Yeah. So, you know, it was trying to do some interesting things just as Astounding She-Monster was trying to do some interesting things. So I was like, okay, I'm going to slot it in between these two. Mm. That's quite a bit lower. Yeah. Um, let's see. 197 to 212 is a difference of 15 films. So half of that is roughly seven, which brings us to 204. So that's Wolfblood and The Creeper is kind of what we're looking at here. Do you remember The Creeper very much? Nope. It's a movie where there's some scientists and they are like extracting glands from cats or something it's it's all about cats and and like the the woman turns into like a cat murderer it's very much a cat people rip off okay well here's the thing we've identified uh the creeper as a ripoff um the astounding she monster is not a ripoff it is a combination of corman and wood Mm -hmm. uh so let's say that that puts the astounding she monster above the creeper so compared to wolf blood how do you feel Wolfblood had the cards stacked against it because we wanted werewolves and it gave us lycanthropy. Right. <laughs> Which is a very fine line, listener. If you want to go listen to that, you'll understand. If you want to go watch it, you'll understand. But I think that movie is much more a movie than astounding she monster and the reason i say that is it's silent era they have a bunch of equipment and they're trekking up into the canadian forests looking at logging activity it going down the waters whatever it has multiple characters they clearly spent money on it like i feel like you're making the it's a real movie argument yeah okay okay cool sweet awesome (laughs) so then coming in to the list at the new number 204 is the Astounding She-Monster from 1958, directed by Ronnie Ashcroft. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, where you can also find links to all of the episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on twitter at underscore scream scene scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed if you'd like to leave us a rating or a review that helps us out a bunch another way you can help us out is by just telling a friend about us whether that's on social media or in real life word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience If you have the financial means, we also wouldn't mind if you would head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content and 
patrons of all stripes get to vote on what we watch for our monthly horror adjacent bonus episode this month's theme is silent nights uh all of the movies are silent movies well actually ben i have to stop you right there because we're actually calling the poll today oh when the podcast releases sure right this month's horror adjacent episode is going to be on paul lenny's the man who laughs starring conrad veidt as gwynplaine it has been a while since I've seen Conrad Veidt. Hmm. This is like the Conrad Veidt movie for me, even though I think like there's probably other movies that deserve that title more. I think for me, it's probably Casablanca because that was my first touchstone with him. And then next would be Caligari. Right. I was like a big Joker fan as a teen. So um, I definitely, and you know, being a film nerd who liked silent movies at the same time, like I definitely sought out this movie. And so this was like the main thing I knew Conrad Veidt from for a while. Um, That and being ridiculously handsome. Um, Cool. Well, we are excited to bring you that bonus episode. It will be coming to you as a Christmas gift on December the 25th. Yes. Which is thematic you know uh ghost stories on christmas right that's exactly true so if you want to be a part of all that head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast before we get to the end of december ben we have next week's episode what Mm -hmm. are we watching well sarah as an apology for this film (laughs) uh next week's movie is going to be one of the major major milestone landmarks of the horror genre oh it is our next film from hammer it is their follow-up to their surprise hit curse of frankenstein it is horror of dracula starring christopher lee as count dracula and peter cushing as van helsing ah yes good I'm so excited. You should be. You should be. I'm super excited for you to watch this movie, which you've never seen. Yes. Um, And I I totally just want you to see it completely unspoiled. I'm really looking forward to your reactions. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.